New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Anne Watts and Joan Watts, and they are the two eldest daughters and the firstborn children of philosopher Alan Watts, who died in 1973. They have together curated and edited the collected letters of their father. Anne, Joan, welcome to the New Dimensions Café. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. We could talk about lots of things, but maybe the easiest way is to give a flavor of some of the letters. And I would love for you to go back to maybe the 1940s. These letters go back to earlier than that. But let's go back to 1940s when your father wrote a letter about the meaning of happiness and his own writing. Can you share that? And Sure, I'd be happy to. This is a letter he wrote to his parents in June of 1940. And he says, It was good to hear from you at such length about the meaning of happiness, as I had indeed been wondering whether your work would leave you any time to study it. Apparently, I worked so hard on it that it's difficult to gather the momentum to start really serious writing again. But at last, I'm getting moving. It takes about three months or so for one's thoughts to become modified to the extent of being compelled by them to write again, realizing that you can still give your ideas a more complete expression than you have done before. Whenever I cease to outgrow my work will be a bad day for me. When I finished that book, I thought it reasonably free from inadequacies. But now, each week shows me another hole in it. There are all sorts of things left unsaid, and I say to myself, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy. So that really gives a flavor of his openness and and his pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and curiosity and, and ability to just have a very fluid mind that he he said, okay, this book, all right, it may be in print, but he knows that he could add so much. There are holes in it. There's still things to learn. Right, right. And so he was never afraid of just writing where he was in a given moment and then uh, and then changing things in a, at a later time. He was perfectly okay with that. And in reading, if you go through all the letters in this book, and this is just an enormous volume of letters, he, he kept up a correspondence just almost weekly or maybe even daily. I mean, a lot of correspondence with his mother and father back in England when he was here in America. It was amazing that he would write them so often, and all of those letters were kept. And so we see a chronology of his life and the way it unfolded. And then let's skip way ahead. Now we're coming out of 1940 and we're coming into 1973. This is the last year of his life. And he's writing on a very different subject, which would give you a flavor of the different kinds of subjects that he would cover. So, 
Anne, if you could share this one. I love how much his letters are very pertinent to today, and this is one of them. And this is to the editor of Gourmet Magazine. Sir, if I were to have been told three or four years ago that I was to become a vegetarian, a fruitarian, and a nuts and cheese freak, I would have been horrified. For in those days, I prided myself in preparing bouffe tartare, pâté de veau en côte, poupeton de didon, and a steak and kidney pie better than anything to be found in London. Our father loved cooking. But something has happened to our meat and poultry. The meat has become mere chewing stuff, and the poultry, in particular the breasts, has come to taste like papier-mâché. Some of my friends who are health food aficionados say that this is because I have ruined my palate by smoking too many cigars and imbibing too much spirituous liquor. This is not true. Several years ago, I imagined that this was the cause of my finding American potatoes, even the little new ones, entirely tasteless. But when, after 20 years' absence, I returned to my father's garden in England, the potatoes were as delicious as when I had been a child. So I have not destroyed my palate. The truth of the matter is that our edible animals are being raised in vast cell blocks under the superstition that almost anything fed, say, to a chicken will turn into chicken. Why they are even scheming to breed featherless chickens to eliminate the plucking process. The reason is simply that the food industries are owned by syndicates composed of barbarians who are interested in nothing more than making money. Being barbarians, they do not understand that huge sums of money become increasingly worthless when there is no food on the market except the fraudulent plasticities produced by themselves and their equally uncivilized competitors. The letter goes on, but I think that gives us that the gives, flavor and <laughs> or that the was, lack of flavor. <laughs> right, and that's 1973, and yes. we're still discussing that today and having this conversation. Absolutely. And, and there has been some shifting and at least a consciousness-raising part that he was ringing the bell even then. Joan, at one point, he this was a very poignant part uh, that you shared in the book, it was a letter to you personally when you got married. You were in Japan at the time. So tell the circumstances of your wedding and who you married, and then read a bit about your father's advice. Well, I was living at the time in Japan with my grandmother, Ruth Fuller Sasaki, who was uh, the first Caucasian to be ordained a Zen Buddhist priest in Japan. And I fell in love with a, a naval officer from uh, the Midwest, and he was Catholic, and we uh, decided to get married. And my grandmother, of course, wanted to be sure that we were married in a, the proper church, because since he and his family were Catholic, she felt that I should have the opportunity to be married in a Catholic church. And so all this was, of course, relayed to my father. And he wrote me this... Before, before you read what he wrote you, I'm sorry to mm -hmm. interrupt you, but if you could tell our listeners a little bit, a little flavor of his journey, he became actually an, an Episcopal priest. I mean, he had joined the church at some time and really went deeply into the mysticism of the church and tried to bring in how it fit in with Eastern thought and 
Buddhism and Taoism and bringing that all together and how then he ultimately left the church with some, a little, I would you say he was disillusioned by oh, the church? I would say he was disillusioned, yes. And I, I think, you know, he really went deeply into exploring Christian doctrine and uh, Christian ritual, everything from the, the Catholic Church to the Greek Orthodox to Russian, etc. He was very interested in that, but he was much more interested not in the the common day-to-day organization of churches as they were in this time and still are, but in the history of them and the way they came about and how their religious practices uh, reflected uh, the, the times back then. So now, Joan, you're becoming a Catholic in order to marry this naval lieutenant, and your father is writing this advice to you. Right. As you may know, in order to be married in a Catholic church, both partners have to be Catholic. So anyway... He writes, becoming a Roman Catholic, especially in the United States, is a step for which one should have pretty good reasons, as distinct from rationalizations. You are obviously in danger of taking the step, A, because you are in love with a Catholic, and B, because you may need to show your independence of a family of Buddhists, infidels, agnostics, and whatnots. Taken for these reasons, the the step will certainly lead to conflict later on, That may, of course, be okay, for there's always conflict about something. But the trouble is that they make your choice of the church automatic rather than free. And this, by the church's own standards, is unfortunately sinful. Of course, its own marriage laws lay the church wide open to this abuse, which only goes to show that they have the propagandist purpose of increasing numbers rather than the sincere intent of winning souls. Reason B, which I detect that you say about your school, is cutting off your nose to spite your face. Of course, everyone needs to show some independence of their family and upbringing, but it's pretty costly to yourself if you do this by assuming what will later be the suffocating role of the stuffed shirt to offset your school's phony bohemianism. I'm not saying that Catholicism, even Jansenist, and stuffiness necessarily go together, only that you yourself have a slight tendency in this direction. Forgive me this criticism, for it is perhaps my own fault. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And now that reminds me, like, when he talks about your bohemianism, and for a period of time, you were in a school in Ojai that Krishnamurti was associated with. So you did have quite a varied background, and you were in a boarding school in England. So in the letters, we follow both you, and and you, Joan, in all of your incarnations, too, because your father really watched all of that. He was witness to all of that, and he wrote about it in surprising ways. He was very cognizant of what you would go through. And especially as he went through different marriages, he was cognizant of how you felt about especially your biological mother and then your stepmothers. So that's all right there laid bare. Very much so. How does it feel to have that all out there? And do you feel reconciled with that in some way? Well, I think it was certainly mind-expanding for us as we went through the process of reading the letters. A lot of our memories were well-documented in these letters and how we grew up 
and how we behaved. And I, I think I found myself in many instances kind of following his pattern of life because I was married three times and I went through uh, my period of Catholicism as he went through his period of Anglicanism and I reverted to a more Bohemian lifestyle and then eventually became even more so. So, and you probably have something to say about that as well. For me, just reading the letters and having it affirm the difficulties that I went through, particularly with my mother and my uh, stepmother, Dorothy, it was really something to have that confirmed because I, I think memory is so often suspect. And so in these letters, I really got to see that. I also got to see towards the end of the letters, as I become an adult, he writes very warmly about me and who I am and my lifestyle. You know, he never told me directly. We were good friends, but he never said, this is what I think about you or feel about you or any of that. So that was illuminating for me as I read the letters. I was like, oh, I never knew he thought that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's a part of the unfolding of all of these letters. But it certainly isn't the whole focus of these letters because so much of his philosophy and all the different people that he wrote to, from Carl Jung to different senators and politicians, it was so prolific and he was so articulate. And he really was ahead of his time. Or we would say he's one of the shoulders on which we stand, that we're still conversing on the issues that he brings up in these letters. And I want to say one other thing about it. There's a book that is one of my favorite all-time books, and it's The Letters of E.B. White. He was associated with The New Yorker magazine and, and just a wonderful writer. And this collection of letters of Alan Watts is in the same classroom, let's say, of the E.B. White letters, that these are just classic letters. They are just, uh, just give you such a flavor of the times, not only in which he was living, going back to the 1930s, all the way up to the early 70s, but into the century where we are now, because we're still conversing on that. So I want to thank you both deeply for taking the time to curate and to edit and to comment on these letters and hold our hand and put this together. This is just a marvelous collection. Thank you so much. Mm, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to remind our listeners that I have been speaking with both Anne and Joan Watts, and they are the two eldest daughters and the firstborn children of Alan Watts. And as I said, they are the curators and editors of the collected letters of Alan Watts. And if you want to know more about the work of Ann Watts, you can go to her website, annwatts.com, A-N-N-E-W-A-T-T-S.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and I want to thank you for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at 
newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.